All right, my beloved, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, please open up. The title of the sermon tells us much. How are you building? We're uh, in a section of 1 Corinthians where Paul, he addresses, he, he's addressing a, a schism, a division that had actually taken place in the church in Corinth. And it had, he addressed it back in 1 Corinthians 1 verses 10 through 13. I didn't touch on it then because I knew I was going to be hitting it now. Um, in chapter 1, he said, Paul said, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there, are, there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? And so he, he recognizes in chapter 1, which he now addresses in chapter 3, that the church in Corinth was lacking in unity, and he uses that to teach to their lack of maturity, their lack of spiritual maturation, and he brings a rebuke, and it is a, it is a harsh rebuke, and we're going to see this at the very beginning of the chapter. Um, by God's grace, we will, we will hear it well. well. We'll hear it in such a way where we won't go, oh, that doesn't apply to us, but rather we will have God speak to us this morning. It is the word of God, um, and I'm hopeful that when you gathered here this morning, if you struggle listening, if you struggle just hearing, um, and you struggle receiving, that we step back and we realize that this is God's word. Um, we are a Bible teaching church, and so my, my goal is to bring God in honor and glory by teaching you the Bible, by preaching to you the gospel of grace in the scriptures. So this is not man's teaching, this is not my teaching, this is what God has to say through the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians. Um, and so I was encouraging my youngest son last night, he said, you know, I sometimes I get, I get distracted during the sermon and I said do you realize that when there when um, the preaching is faithful to the word of God that God is speaking and if we if we hear it as such we might respond better than if you think that I'm talking to you Um, the apostle Paul here he he rebukes the church and he brings teaching and I want to look at it in three ways this morning I want to look at one our expected growth in Christ two our collective growth in Christ and then three our foundational growth on Christ so first, the expected growth that we all have in Christ, according to Scripture, the, the collective growth that we're supposed to have in Christ with one another and with God, and then lastly, the foundation. It's to be on Him. It's on Jesus. So let's look at the expected growth first. I don't imagine any of you are going to be shocked by this first point. You know that you know this teaching well, but it certainly, certainly bears repeating for us today, verses 1 through 4. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 4, Paul writes, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Verse 2, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh, behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? And so he starts off in chapter 3, and it is a rebuke. Now, I want you to notice in chapter 1, he says, But I, brothers, could not address you. The word brother, it's a term of endearment, and he's identifying them as believers. He's identifying them as being brothers and sisters in Christ who know the living God through Jesus Christ. And he does it because he wants them to know that, I mean, he's about to say something very difficult for them to hear. And I would imagine it's going to be very difficult for many of us to hear. It certainly was difficult for me to read and study. Look at verse 1. He said, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. 
Four years had transpired approximately from the planting of this church to the writing of this letter. And he's saying, you're still infants. He's saying, you are not a healthy, vibrant, spiritually mature church as you should be. He says, I have to teach to you and treat you like infants, still giving you milk because you have not grown. You have not eaten deeply from these deep truths. You have not fed upon the word of God. You've not grown in the deeper doctrinal truths of the faith. And therefore, you are still spiritually immature, stunted in their growth. Now, there was nothing wrong with him feeding them milk early on. Look at verse 2. He says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. When he planted the church, he came proclaiming Jesus Christ and him crucified. He came with the basic doctrinal truths to start this church. So early on, it was not a problem. And there was nothing wrong with feeding them milk. And this is true for new believers and certainly for new churches. There's nothing wrong with feeding milk. But sufficient time had passed in Corinth. The believers should have been more mature. They should have been further along the road of sanctification, understanding the deeper truths and submitting to it, more importantly. Verse 2 again, even now, he says, you are not ready. Ready for what? He says, even now, you're not ready for solid food. Even now, four years later, I still have to bring milk to you. He says, for you are still of the flesh. Now, be very careful here. When he says you're still of the flesh, he's not saying you're unsaved. He's literally saying you're still acting fleshly. You're still living with a character that resembles the world and not the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's saying to the believers there, you're refusing to grow. You're my brothers in Christ. You're my sisters in Christ. And you're refusing to hear the word of God, to mortify the flesh, and to live by the Spirit of Christ. You're refusing to do it. And so this is, this is an act of rebellion and lack of submission. And this is the heart of the rebuke. Paul said in Romans chapter 8 that every believer has an obligation. Do you know what that obligation is? Every believer, he says, has an obligation. He has an obligation not to the sinful nature, not to live according to it, not to be immature, not to simply drink milk. He says we all have an obligation, verse 13, Romans 8, to the spirit putting to death the misdeeds of the body. And so Paul says, early on, I understood why I only fed you milk. I understood why you weren't that mature. He goes, but you're, you should be grown up now. You should be growing up now. Four years had passed. In other words, they were culpable. Key, they were culpable. They were responsible for their lack of maturity. It was on them. It was on them. And then Paul uses a rivalry that had kindled in the church between he and Apollos. He uses it to illustrate the point. That's not even the focal of, point of this passage, but he uses it to illustrate the point. Look at verses 3 and 4. Paul says, You are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way, as the world does? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? In other words, their foolish man-made allegiances, I follow Paul and I follow Apollos, reveals their pathetic spiritual state. Jealousy, strife, rivalry. Who's the better leader? Who's the better teacher? Who's the better pastor? I mean, these are things that are outside in the world, not to be inside the church. The Greeks did that. The Greeks would have a particular teacher they would align themselves with, and they would have that teacher's philosophy, and then they would divide accordingly. And it made its way into the church. Paul's saying it's not fit for the people of God. It's not fit for those who are sanctified, those who are saints. He said it's, it's fleshly behavior. Their lack of unity. 
their lack of submission to the word of God, their lack of growing in the word of God. It was grievous to Paul and even more grievous to the living God. They should have been much further along than they were at this point in time. In Hebrews chapter 5, this passage could have been pertaining to the church in Corinth. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 and following, the author says, By this time you ought to be teachers. Yet you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers have their, have their powers of discernment trained. Listen to that. Trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The church at Corinth had not trained themselves. They had not practiced to distinguish good from evil. And that's why we're going to see as we move through these chapters the evil that was there. You say, how could that happen? They were still infants in the faith. They hadn't trained themselves. They hadn't practiced righteousness. They were still operating according to the norms of the culture rather than reflecting the light of Christ. God has the same expectation for each and every one of us to train ourselves in the way of the faith to exercise the basic means of grace, to grow in spiritual maturation, to study the word of God, to to know it well, to engage the living God in prayer, to participate in biblical community, real biblical community, not going to church, but being involved in each other's lives, participating in the service and the ministry and the work of God's kingdom. He expects all this. He expects us to take the mind of Christ that we talked about last week that he gives us freely in our salvation and to have our minds aligned with his so that his desires and his plans and his purposes for our lives become ours as well. They become one and we want that. We want what Christ wants. We desire what Christ desires. Now, grievously, many in the Western church today, we don't see this teaching in 1 Corinthians 3 as obligatory. We see it as optional. It's obligatory. It's not optional for us not to grow in Christ. We've replaced the full salvation of the gospel of grace, which is your justification in Christ, your sanctification in Christ, and your glorification in Christ. It includes us daily growing in the wisdom and knowledge of God. It includes us engaging in the means of grace to become a holy people, a royal priesthood. The Bible says set apart to bring God honor and glory. This is the full gospel message. We've replaced that with a simple, cheap prayer, the ordinance of baptism, church attendance, and an occasional Bible devotion. And that becomes the fullness in our minds of the gospel of grace. And that's not it. It's not it. I'm afraid that in the West, our standard of the Christian life and fidelity to Christ is so low that from a biblical perspective, we've lost all sight of what it means to live a gospel-centered, sacrificial life. I mean, the bar has been dropped so low here in our country, in our time. I I don't even know if the Apostle Paul would call many of us infants. He might call us embryos or fetuses. I don't know that we could even get the term infants. When we look at the history of the church and we look at people that have, have, have worked and loved and served throughout centuries and then we look at the Western church, it's grievous. It's grievous. And yet we... I think this is the hardest part. We of all people, we of all people in all times throughout the history of the church have the greatest access to growth. 
And there are Bibles everywhere. There are churches everywhere. There are ministry opportunities everywhere. There are discipleship training everywhere. You can stay at home and train online. I mean, there's so, the opportunities now available to us, we being infants or embryos in the faith, we have no excuse. We have no excuse. And yet messages like this one that you'll hear this morning from 1 Corinthians 3, sermons of this nature calling us to arise and shine, to awake from our spiritual slumber and grow, will have no lasting impact unless we actually participate, unless we actually exercise if you hear the word of God this morning from 1 Corinthians 3 and you go, yes, I agree, and you don't do something with it, you don't begin to train, you don't begin to take the means of grace and exercise daily, you don't begin to work hard at living this Christian life day by day, step by step, over your entire life, then it will have no, it will have no impact. It requires work. It requires discipline. It requires exercise. If our children were not developing properly, physically, spiritually, cognitively, we, we do as a culture. We go to great means to try to figure out what's wrong. We seek doctors. We seek medications. We seek training programs. We have special services set up for individuals who are not developing properly. And the culture, we get this in the culture. And yet, in the context of the church, how much more important do we grow in Christ? Do we mature in Christ? We know it's not good to stay infants. I know everybody says how much they love babies and they love, and they, but you really wouldn't wish that your child did not grow. You know, you can look back fondly upon the years when they were young, but you don't, you don't wish that your 30-year-old was looking and acting and living like a five-year-old, right? Well, if we apply that to the spiritual realm, God is not pleased with people who have been in the faith 5, 10, 15 years and we're still living as though we just came to a saving grace in Christ. 2 Peter 3.18 says, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow. Grow. We're supposed to grow. So point number one. God expects all his children to grow in holiness. It's obligatory, not optional. It's obligatory, not optional. Any questions? You can ask a question, you know. We get so weird on some of these things. Like, like and I can only talk and you can't speak. If you've got a question, raise your hand. Not inappropriate at all. Secondly, he expects us to grow collectively. I think this part escapes us a bit as well. Because when we think of growth, we think, well, I need to do this with God. And it's a collective growth. Let's look. Verses 5 through 9. Paul writes, <clears throat> What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Now grievously, and this has happened throughout the history of the church, but in the last decade, um, we've seen, uh, especially in reform circles, this rise of the celebrity pastor, the celebrity preacher, the celebrity author. These, these high-profile, um, almost Hollywood-like fanfares around a man or a man's ministry. And it's become so extreme that there is a particular church of a very well-known pastor 
that cannot disclose, there are multiple campuses of his church, he cannot disclose the location where he'll be preaching that Sunday. Because if he does, they'll flock to that location and they will vacate the others. Now, saints, there's something wrong with that. Certainly in the context of what Paul is writing here. Paul was one of those celebrity pastors and he hates it. He teaches against it. He was on that list of the guys that you wanted to go listen to preach. But he's quick to remind the believers in Corinth, and I pray us today, that he, Apollos, and every other believer, every other pastor, every other teacher or author is a servant of God. A servant of God. In fact, he uses a word in the Greek that you will know well. It's deacon. He calls himself a deacon, not in the sense of the office, but as a servant. The word deacon literally meant someone who waited on tables. But in the Christian vernacular, it became a term to identify the lowliest servant, the lowest position someone could take, the lowest service you could engage in in serving someone else. In other words, Paul is revealing their ultimate stupidity in elevating a lowly servant when it was God himself who should be elevated alone. God alone, the one who was doing the work, was the one to be lifted up. Not Paul, not Apollos, not Peter, not you, not me, not any pastor or teacher or preacher, but Jesus Christ. Look at verse uh, verse 6 again. He said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And then he says, you want to talk about a, a, a humble verse by this man. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And he draws upon an agricultural uh, illustration here, which I know we might struggle with a bit, but we can, all of us know that if you put a plant in, you got to water it, right? Okay, so we're okay on that. I know that we're far removed from life on the farm. Paul planted the church. He brought the gospel. He preached Jesus Christ and him crucified. Apollos came afterward and he watered the seed. He brought teaching. He brought the Old Testament and some of the gospels to bear upon the planting that Paul had done. Each separate, each important. But it was God here that Paul says, God is the one who made the gospel grow in the hearts and minds of those in Corinth. God did the work. It was God who produced all real spiritual work then, and it's God who produces all spiritual work now and has throughout the ages. And therefore, if that's true, if God's the one doing the work through us, then Paul doesn't deserve the glory. Apollos doesn't deserve the glory. God deserves the glory. All the praise and honor and glory belongs to him. He's the one doing the great work. Paul admits, I love this, He says, essentially, you know, my work, it's nothing. Look at verse 7. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but God's transforming hearts and minds is everything. Points, redirects their gaze, their attention, their adoration back to God again and again and again. And it needs to be there. That's where it belongs. He reminds them as he reminds us There is no Paul, there is no Apollos, there is no Peter, there is no John apart from Christ. There's no work in isolation. Look at verse 8. Paul says, he who plants and he who waters are one. Wait a minute, I thought that Paul planted and Apollos watered. They did. Separate tasks. But he says, we're one. Look at verse 9. He says, for we are God's fellow workers. In other words, he's saying there's an essential unity in what we're doing. Even though I planted and Apollos watered, We are unified in what we are doing. You can water dirt without seed 
as long as you want. Saturated dirt will never bear fruit apart from seed. You take a seed and you put it in the ground and you have no water, it'll never germinate, it'll never grow. The, the planting and the watering have to go together, but it was for the same purpose. So Paul says that they're one. The one who plants and the one who waters are one. Far from being rivals, Paul is saying, you know, you're arguing for me and you're arguing for Apollos and you're both completely off base here because we're working for the same God for the same purpose, the same end and aim, the redemption of mankind through Jesus Christ. So rather than perpetuate the rivalry, which Paul could have done in this letter, you know that, Paul could have easily stoked this a little bit. He could have added a few choice words about Apollos, a few about himself, and he could have got this rivalry going had he wanted the glory himself. But he doesn't do that. He reminds the church that he and Apollos and every single believer, look at the latter part of verse 8, every single one of us will receive his wages according to his labor. In other words, it's not a competition. Paul was not competing with Apollos to see who could share the gospel with the most people, who could, who could bring the most people to church, who could plant the most churches. It's not a competition. Every believer, every brother and sister in Christ is fighting the same cause, which is the gospel of grace in Christ. We're all on the same team. We're all engaged in the same ministry, to the same end and aim, to the glory of God. There's no competition here. And Paul says, every servant of God receives his wage, as God determines, according to his labor, as God determines. So far from competition, he's saying, your wage will be based upon your labor that God himself gives. It's the most extraordinary passage. That means, saints, that we're not to be caught up in trying to look around and determine who deserves more of what, based upon how hard they have worked or what they have done. How, how, how great a ministry they engaged in or how popular that church is or how many books someone's written. This is all foolishness in the kingdom. Rather, as God's fellow servants, as working together with God, we are to encourage one another to faithfully labor. We don't need rivalries. We don't need competitions. We need people coming up to us and saying, listen, press on, keep working, keep serving, keep going, keep going encouragement, not rivalry, not jealousy, not envy. I mean, envy in the body of Christ? For what? If Paul works hard, Apollos is blessed. If Apollos works hard, Paul is blessed. They're members of one body. When we serve together, saints, when we serve Christ, we are blessed. Your faithful labor is my faithful labor. My faithful labor is your faithful labor. Now, it doesn't mean that we can be slothful and go, all right, then you know what, I'll let you work or I'll let someone else work. It's not saying that. Look at verse 8 again. It says, each will receive his wages according to his labor. The wages earned will be earned by you in the power of Christ. And it's not based upon the temporal results, how successful you are in living out your life compared to someone like Paul or Apollos or someone else. Your results will be based upon, as we're going to see how this works, will be based upon you laboring faithfully as God has called you to work. Heaven, thankfully, will be filled with saints that we've never heard of. It will be filled with those who have never written a book, some who have never read a book, some who have never delivered a sermon, 
or spoke at a conference. It'll be filled with those who never pastored a large church or started a popular ministry or received the applause of any Christian. Heaven will be filled with all those who love Christ, faithfully laboring in the work of the gospel without much success in this world at times. Some planting, some watering, some fertilizing, some weeding, some pruning back limbs, some preparing the soil, some fixing the machinery that works in the soil. All labor that is done in the name of Jesus Christ for the glory of God will be rewarded. All labor. Regardless of who sees it or who knows about it or how successful it seems in the eyes of the world. All labor. And if I understand my scripture correctly and how the kingdom of God is upside down on everything, I imagine that those that are most glorified in the kingdom will be those, the lowliest servants that labored faithfully in the Lord. And we'll be saying, well, what did he do? What did she do? You may say, what a ridiculous standard. My boss doesn't evaluate me like that. My boss doesn't evaluate me on my labor. My boss evaluates me on my success, on how well I do. So what kind of standard is this? This is God's standard. A man is glorified in his labor because it's labor in the Lord. Look at verse 9. Paul calls us God's fellow workers. Did you hear that? You talk about a startling expression. Paul calls us God's fellow workers. What does that mean? That means that God elevates all Christian service, all Christian work, all ministry. He elevates it to divine heights. And he says, you're not just working for me, you're working with me. You're fellowshipping with God. You're coming alongside of God and you're working with the creator to redeem mankind, to restore a broken world. One author put it well. He said this, without God, listen, without God, we cannot. And without us, he will not. Without God, we cannot, and without us, he will not. Which means what? He chose us to labor, to work, to serve, to come in and be a fellow worker with him. The simple truth that God chose us to participate in the great work of mankind, redeeming man from the wages of sin and death, to join him, to fellowship with him, to come alongside and work with him. It's extraordinary. Extraordinary. And this, saints, is the greatest success of all, right? You're striving together with God. You're fellowshipping with God. True fellowship, not just eating. You will eat with the Lord, but being in agreement with his will and his designs, fellowshipping by enjoying a mutual affection with God, fellowshipping by enjoying his presence, being conformed into his image, working with him. True fellowship. The greatest ministry the most successful church plants, the greatest revivals in human history will pale in comparison when you, the believer, have fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. There is no greater success than being a fellow worker with the living God. That means if you're laboring with the Lord, truly ministering, serving in his kingdom for his glory, then you are already successful beyond measure. If you are laboring with the Lord through Christ, by the power of Christ, you're already successful beyond measure. Even before you wrote a book or engaged it, you're already successful in the eyes of God if you're fulfilling this calling. 
So first, we're all expected. Each and every one of us is expected to grow in Christ. Number two, God expects us to grow collectively with one another and with him. It's a collective growth, not just a me, my growth. Lastly, what is the foundation of this? The foundational growth on Jesus Christ. Our foundational growth on Christ. Paul doesn't leave them, nor does he leave us, contemplating this strange rivalry between uh, himself and Apollos. He doesn't do that. He redirects our focus to Christ and the service and the ministry and the labor that we have been called to. In other words, he calls us to critique ourselves in our labor. Every single believer, without exception, will one day stand before God and give an account of your work or lack thereof in Christ. Every single believer. One day you're going to stand before God and he's going to open up the books and he's going to look at your whole life and he's especially going to look at your life after you came to a saving grace and he's going to say, what work took place in the name of my son? How well did you steward the life that I gave you? This is so important, saints, for our cultural moment. It's so important for Camden Avenue Baptist Church, for our church. I want to I walk through these last verses. I'm going to ask some questions, and then we're going to get the answers from the Bible. Okay? I'm gonna, just going to ask some questions, listen close to the questions, and by God's grace, hear the answers. Um, first question is, who is expected to build? So we're all expected to work, but he's talking about building here. Look at verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. That every single believer is called to build. Now, I don't know if you were like me. I loved building when I was young. And God says, well, that's fantastic because you get a chance to build your whole life. Let each one of us, every believer without exception, is to build upon the name of Jesus Christ. It's reemphasized in verse 13. Look. It says, Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test, latter part of verse 13, what sort of work each one has done. In other words, we're not going to be riding on anybody's coattails. Right? You cannot say, well, you know what? My, my dad was a faithful servant of the Lord. Or my mom, she, she loved and she prayed and she ministered. and she, she really built the kingdom of God. Or my brother. You can't say any of that. Your work in Christ will be brought forth. It will be manifest. It will be made known. And every one of us is expected to engage in this fruitful endeavor, laboring and serving our king. Now, that does not mean We can butcher the passage like this. It does not mean that you are being called into full-time vocational ministry where you receive your livelihood from the ministry, preaching, teaching, something along those lines. But it does mean that you are a full-time minister. What do I mean? You are called by God to use your gifts and talents and exercise fully the grace that God has given you by laboring in the kingdom, by engaging in ministry. You are a full-time minister. I've been asked on more than one occasion when I went into the full-time ministry, and my answer is always the same. I said, the day I came to a saving grace in Jesus Christ. 
They said, no, when did you come into full-time ministry? The day that I came to a saving grace in Jesus Christ, I entered into full-time ministry because we are to be living sacrifices our whole life to be worshiping God, right? So there's no, there's no partitioning. There's no part-time. There's no full, it's all full-time. Your gifts, your talents, your experiences, laboring as God has called you to work in whatever he's called you to do. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We know 8 and 9 well, and we just pass right by 10. Verse 10, Paul says, For you are God's workmanship. You're his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for you to do. You're God's workmanship. He made you so that you can work and serve in his kingdom in the work that he has prepared to do in advance. In advance, in advance of you, in advance of all creation, I would argue, based upon the teaching of Ephesians 1 and 2. And that means if you're not serving, if you're not building up your life in Christ, your family in Christ, you're not building up the church in Christ as the Bible commands, then you're not engaging in the work that God has prepared in advance for you to do. In other words, you're a sluggard. You're not working. God made you a worker, and he says, this is what I'm going to have you do, and if you're not doing it, then God is not glorified in it. And that's the worst part. God made you a worker to work and bring him honor and glory. And if you're not working, you're not bringing him honor and glory. And that day, this day that we're talking about, this is the day of the Lord. This is the day of judgment. It'll be a horrible day for you. And I don't say that meanly, saints. I want you to listen. We're all going to stand before him. And we have to give an account of the life that we lived in Christ. And we're gonna, not on our own power, in Christ. How did you serve? How did you love? How did you do your full-time ministry? When my brothers and I were young, my father, my father uh, went to work early every day. And so when we got out of bed, I mean early, like 4 o'clock, 4.30, when we'd get up, he was already gone. And during the summer, I'm so thankful for this. I hated him during that time, but I love it in retrospect. He would make a list. I mean, there were four boys in the house. My mom, right, to keep her sane. And he'd make a list. And every day there was a list of things that we were supposed to do. And the list had to be done before he got home. And I'm very thankful for that because it kept us, I mean, it was summertime, you know, it kept us working. There was one summer, I think I've shared this, there was one summer when he had, he had us move rocks from one part of the yard to the other part of the yard. And the following summer, we moved a bunch of them back. You say, that sounds like a concentration camp. No, it, it kept us serving. And if we did not finish the chores by the time we got home, then we were in trouble, rightfully so. But the worst part of it was not not, not, not getting in trouble, it was displeasing him. I mean, he's off working all day, early hours, long hours, to support us and put food on the table and clothes on our back. So when he get home and it wasn't done, it was disappointing to him. Saints, what you do with your time right now, right now, this day, this day, this week that we will have before we meet again by God's grace next Sunday, R.C. Sproul says it best. He says, it counts for time and eternity. In other words, what we do every day, the work we do every day, it has a ripple effect, and it goes on forever. So we're all expected to build. We're all expected to engage in the full-time ministry of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How do we do it? Look at verse 10 again. Paul says, you do it according to the grace of God. 
He said, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. In other words, he's saying, you're going to build, you're going to work, you're going to serve, you're going to labor based upon God's grace and God's power in you. It's not you, it's Christ working through you. But you must work. That means not trying to do, listen closely, saints, not trying to do what God has not equipped you to do and not neglecting what God has equipped you to do. Not trying to do that which you are not equipped or called to do and not neglecting the very things that God has equipped you to do. Paul said, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. He says, I planted, Apollos watered it. Now, very practically, as a church, that means this. We are to do our part, not the whole. Right? Every single person is to do his or her part, not the whole. Some of you have strapped a yoke on yourself that's not, your, it's not yours. Christ didn't place it there. Some of you have taken a burden saying, I've got to do this because others are not. Do your work. Labor as God has called you to labor. He's brought other people into your life to help you build your life and build your family and build this church. He's brought other people collectively. He's put us together. The Bible goes so far as to say in 1 Corinthians 12 that he's placed people with gifts and talents to serve in particular places. And that means that if we collectively work together, if we work together, and it's a big if, if we all do our part, then the work that God desires to get done will get done. If we don't, it won't. If we neglect to do our part, if you neglect to serve and minister as God has called you to, then you suffer. Those around you suffer. Certainly the church suffers. We're supposed to do work and serve as God has equipped us. And we're supposed to do it, Paul says, as a skilled master builder. Literally, I like this in the Greek, it's a wise master architect. Someone who's, who's putting together and building something in such a way, it's not random, it's not haphazard, it's careful, it's thoughtful. As a master architect would sit down and design and then put into building process a beautiful home or a beautiful building. We're not supposed to just throw our time together or throw our resources together or just kind of move at it with blunt force, careful consideration, thoughtful preparation, Skillful execution should characterize Christian work, how we, how we are growing in Christ, how we raise our families, how we minister in the body, how we serve in the community. Careful, thoughtful consideration. You say, well, what, what is the foundation of all this? You know it. It's Christ. Right? We are to build. We're to build as skillful master architects and we're to build on the foundation of Jesus Christ. You don't even have to be in construction to know. You go to buy a house, it's one of the first things you look at. I went recently with a brother in Christ to go look at a house. What did I do? I had a flashlight, and I got under the crawl space, and I crawled the attic. I mean, I crawled the attic. What do you know about houses? I crawled in the crawl space underneath. The attic's upstairs, guys. That's okay. Right? We all right here? Are you still listening? And I checked the foundation. I checked for, for cracks. I checked for movement. It was a pillar post design. You look at the foundation. Why? You know, the house can look stunning on the outside. It can look stunning on the inside. If that foundation is flawed, that house is flawed, you should never buy it. Dangerous. So what is the foundation upon which we build? Look at verse 11. 
Paul says, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is the foundation. That means if our work is to bring God honor and glory as it's supposed to, if it's supposed to bless us and others as it's supposed to, it must be built on the person of Jesus Christ. He is the rock. He is the cornerstone. He is the firm foundation. You could give me more upon which we are to build our lives and his church. And this, Paul says, is the foundation already laid. You say, wait a minute. How is it already laid? Jesus Christ, the second person of the holy triune God, he came from heaven to earth and he became a man. And he lived a sinless life. And he died a sinner's death. And then he was buried and he rose again from the dead. And in this great work on the cross, he laid the foundation upon which we can build our lives, our families, and his church. A crucified, risen Savior. He is the ultimate foundation. He is the eternal bedrock because upon him, not only can man have salvation by God's grace through faith in the work of Christ, in the person of Christ, not only can we have salvation, but as we had a chance to sing today, you can be sanctified. You can build. You can actually become holy over time. Yeah, it's hard work and it takes time, but become holy as he is holy and build a holy life and build a holy family and build a holy church. Because he is the firm foundation. Upon him, we can build in a manner that is truly pleasing to God. Upon Jesus Christ. This simple truth of Jesus Christ as the foundation, coming from the work of the cross, it's repeated again and again. It's repeated every Sunday here. Why? Because as glory-starved sinners, we want to build our lives, we want to build our families, and oftentimes we want to build our church on something other than Christ crucified. We'll want to build it upon our own works, our own successes, or our own portfolio. We'll build it on the illusion of happiness or peace or money or academic success. We oftentimes will build it on false religions or false teachers or as we saw here in Corinth, the philosophies of men. We even try building it on compromised truth or partial truth. This is the most deceptive where we take parts of the Bible that we really like and we're going to build our lives on that firm foundation and we'll take these parts that we don't like and we'll just, we'll scoot them aside. We'll make it, you know, part of a, you know, a grandfather's house or grandmother's house in the back. We're not going to have this as part of our house. We will build on things like church membership, but not on serving one another. Church membership in any church that does not serve one another isn't much of a membership. We will build on reading our Bibles daily, but not actually doing what it says. We'll be faithful to our time of devotion, but we will not, will not do what it says. We will attempt to build our lives on conservative values or denominational affiliations rather than on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Partial truths rather than the foundation, which is Christ. No one can begin a work or sustain a work unless it's on Christ. And if you do, it is failed before it begins. Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 7, we actually did this a couple years back now. We exegeted this and I taught from it. He gives a wonderful illustration. He said, everyone, who, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does, and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall. Why? Because it has been founded on the rock, on Christ, the firm foundation. But then he continues, says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And the rain fell, 
And the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Built upon the rock of Christ, there's great hope for our labor. Built upon anything else, that work is lost. It's burned up before you begin. So God expects all of us to build. God expects us to build carefully and wisely as master builders, master architects. He expects us to build on Christ. You say, well, what am I supposed to build with? What are the materials? Look at verses 12 and 13. This is a comprehensive teaching. Verse 12, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. There's so much written on each of these particular types of building materials. I don't have the time to go into detail. Read on it. It's fascinating. What we do see here with very little study are two different types of two lists. One valuable, gold, silver, and precious stones, and the other of little or no value, wood, hay, and straw. And what Paul is concerned about here is not so much the particular type of material being used, but the heart behind the use of the material being used. What we use to build our lives, our families, and the church of God, what we use to build it reveals the degree to which we truly love the living God. If Jesus Christ, saints, is the foundation upon which we build our lives, upon which we build our church, then the materials we use will reflect our love for him. He's certainly worthy of gold and silver and precious stones, our best time, our first fruits of money, our precious energy and our resources, our greatest efforts, our best skills, concentrated and focused on growing. But if we only give to the work of the kingdom our leftovers, whatever time we have remaining at the end of the day spent completely on ourselves, if we only use whatever money or gifts or talents we have spent that are leftovers, the wood, the hay, and the straw, then not only will the building be compromised, we know it will be, but we also know the depth of our love or lack thereof. If we only use that which costs us very little, sacrificing, giving, and serving only when it's easy and convenient, then we're building with wood and hay and straw, not as master builders using precious materials, but as untrained hacks only interested in getting in and getting out without consideration of the quality of the materials being used. Some of you will say, but what does it matter? As long as we're doing something, as long as we're trying, that's all that counts, right? No. Saints, what counts here is what makes it through the fire. What counts is what makes it through the testing. Look at verses 13 through 15. What counts is what comes out at the end. Verse 13, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, usually when we think of the day of the Lord, most evangelicals do this. When we think of the day of the Lord, we think of judgment day, right? We think of God separating the wheat and the chaff and the sheep and the goat. All those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ they're going to be taken into everlasting life. All those who have rejected the Son, they're going to be condemned to an eternal hell, right? Most people think that way. But there's a component here on this day that pertains to the believers being tested as well. Not to determine our standing in Christ. This is imperative. 
Paul's not talking about salvation here. He's talking about believers who are going to come before God and be tested according to their stewardship of the life that God had given them. He says, each one's work will become manifest. It'll be made known for the day will disclose it because it'll be revealed by fire. In other words, everything's going to be brought out. Everything's going to be tested. Everything's going to be laid bare on this day. Nothing will be hidden. There'll be no excuses. No one is going to say to the living God on that day, you know, I was just lazy or I was distracted or, you know, I tried really hard, but, you know, work was tough and and my marriage was bad and, you know, the kids were disobedient. There's going to be no excuses like that. It's all going to be brought forth. Everything manifest and made clear. And then in verse 13, the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. It'll test the work itself. Was it godly work? It'll test the intention and the motivation behind it. Was the work done with a right heart and a right desire? It'll test the foundation. Was the work on Christ? Was it by the power and grace of the Holy Spirit? Or did you venture on your own to do this great work that you might be glorified in the process? It'll test the materials used. Gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw. It'll test the materials. It'll test the sacrifices that were were made. It'll all be brought to light on the day of testing. Nothing. Who are my test takers here? Listen closely. Nothing will be hidden. You're not going to get by this test. Those of you, I know the test taker because I was one. And you could get by a test and you could even get an A and not really know what you were talking about. Not on this day. Test takers, this is a thorough and complete examination. There's no fudging on this. There's no bluffing on this exam. Verse 14, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And once again, salvation is not in question here. This person's standing is in Christ. But I want you to notice something. The consequences are no less real. It's not heaven or hell, but it's how eternity is played out. The consequences here are so real and so eternal that for us not to, not to feel the weight of what Paul is saying here makes us utter fools. If you build well, if you build well on the foundation of Christ with the right motivation, engaging the labor that he's called and equipped you to do, with the right materials, gold and silver and precious stones... If you build well, then God says you'll be rewarded for all eternity. If you build poorly, either not on Christ, with the wrong motivation, with the wrong materials, Paul's saying here clearly, and this is not hard, he said it's all going to be burned up. It'll all be burned up. You're going to bring your work out. The book's going to be open. You're going to say, here, Lord, here's my offering. And whoosh, smoke and ash. Nothing left. And you'll say, praise God, because he says, you yourself will be saved, but only as through fire. I mean, it's, it's the thought of coming before God and thinking, praise God that you saved me, but my whole life, no service, no ministry, no work to bring before you in the name of Christ, that your son might be glorified, and you saved me, and I'm in. But only as though escaping through fire. When we see Christ, and we see the work that he did for us, And we see the great love that the Father had for us by sacrificing the Son. Those tears that will be wiped away, I've taught this before and I truly believe it's the tears that we have for the life not well lived in Christ. And you you can't go do a redo. 
There's no mulligan. I mean, you got one shot to love and serve and minister with all your might and the power of Christ by his grace every moment of every day until you die or until he comes again in glory. You got one shot. In Luke chapter 19, I love it when certain parables match the text perfectly, and this one does. The parable of the ten minas. If you remember it, the noble man representing Christ goes away and he gives his servants money, minas, and he tells them to invest it. Then he comes back and he asks them to give an account of their investments, what they did with the money. This parable reveals what's going to happen on that day when we, those saved by God's grace, stand before God and give an account for our lives. Listen, Luke 19, beginning at verse 16. The noble man calls the servants before him. The first came before him and saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you've been faithful in a very little in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. Extraordinary. The second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. And then another came, saying, this is not where we want to be. Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. Now listen to the Lord's response. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. Your first thought is my first thought. That's not fair. They said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. And God said, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. The blessings of the faithful servant laboring in the Lord on earth are blessings for eternity. The consequences for unfaithful service on earth, the very little that you have will be taken away and given to someone else. I don't have to go into detail. We're talking about our lifespans compared to eternity. How we live as faithful stewards of the gifts and talents God has given us now goes on forever. This is the word of God. This is not my opinion. We cannot hear these words and wisely take them lightly. The life you live today, this afternoon, this evening, tomorrow morning, has a ripple effect. Some critics will say, well, if I only serve to get a reward, then it's all about me and it contradicts the gospel of grace. But it doesn't contradict the gospel because that's not what God is saying. If you only serve for you, for your reward, for your own glory, then on the day of the fire comes out and tests it, it'll test that work and it'll be burned up because the motivation wasn't out of your love for God. But, if you serve God because of who he is, if you labor 
in the work of the Lord because of your love for Christ, because of the love that he poured out on you, if you minister to one another, to his children, because you love them, just because you love them, because Christ loves them, if you bring the gospel to the unsaved, if you minister to those who are the last in our midst, and you engage in this great work with a right heart in the gospel, then it is not in contradiction. It is in fulfillment. It is what we are to do. It's what we are called to do. It's what we've been empowered to do, to be this holy people. Your work then will not be in vain. Your labor will not be in vain. It will stand the test of time and eternity. You ever feel like you're laboring in vain? You say, where are the results? Where's the success? God is glorified in your faithful labor, in the faithful work. Last question, I'll close. What is the great purpose of this building project that we're on? Why build my life on Christ? Why build my family on Christ? Why should we engage to build this church on Christ? Why build it all? If I'm saved by God's grace through faith, why can't I just relax? Why can't I just go and, you know, enjoy a long vacation, an extended stay until Christ comes or I die? Look at the last two verses, verses 16 and 17. Paul says, do you not know? Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. We are the temple of God on earth. The church, the body of Christ makes up God's temple because the Holy Spirit resides in the hearts and minds of every true believer. And that means, saints, brothers and sisters, I appeal to you in love as Paul did to the church at Corinth, how we live how we live, how we live individually, how we live with our friends and families, how we engage at work, how we build here at Camden Avenue as a church, how we love and how we serve and how we engage in the great kingdom work that God has given us to do. It either magnifies God's glory or it does not. It either lifts up his name Because people see you and they see you living and thinking and speaking differently and relating differently and they go, this can't be of you and by your good works they'll glorify your Father in heaven or not. It either fulfills this great calling revealing the great kingdom work and the true power of the gospel or it does not. The purpose, the reason that Paul rebuked the church at Corinth, it's not because he hated him, it's because he loved him. The reason he exhorts them to this life of radical service and sacrifice in love on the gospel, on Christ, the reason he does this is for the glory of God. He rebukes the church at Corinth. He rebukes us at Camden. He rebukes the church throughout the age so that we can live this calling so that God's name is glorified. Is this not our purpose? Is this not why you were put here? To glorify God 
in the life that you live to enjoy him forever as a fellow worker, a fellow servant of the king. I guess only one question remains. What are we waiting for? This is the day the Lord has made. This is the day the Lord has made for us to love him, to serve him faithfully. So I would exhort you, build well, build well, build wisely, love deeply, minister as a master architect, as a skillful builder, each and every day that God gives you. My prayer for myself this week and for you this week that we will not end up like the wicked servant with the one mina when the Lord comes, ashamed of the stewardship of our lives. But we will find ourselves by God's grace and it will take his grace and his power in us to be the servant with the ten minas that procures more being blessed for all eternity. I've never met a true Christian who doesn't want to hear God say to them on that day, well done, good and faithful servant, enter my rest. I've never met someone who says, I don't want to hear that. Every one of us wants to hear it. If so, then we must labor in the Lord by his power. We must. We must. Let's pray. Father, we understand this teaching to be challenging. It goes against every fiber of our flesh that wants to serve ourselves, that wants to be slothful and lazy, doesn't want to engage in kingdom work, doesn't want to sacrifice, certainly doesn't want to minister. I ask, Lord, that you would change that in us. You would cultivate in my brothers and sisters and myself a deep desire to engage in full-time ministry to use the gifts that you've given us, the talents that you have bestowed upon us to do kingdom work, to love our brothers and sisters, really love them, to to serve our brothers and sisters, to sacrificially give of our time and our money and whatever resources you've blessed us with that we might bless others, to take this phenomenal gospel of grace of a a crucified risen savior to the lost that they might hear and repent and believe and become workers too Father if we are your workmanship created to do work that you prepared in advance for us to do then by your grace give us that wisdom set our feet and our hands to the plow enable us not to look back so that we might be fit for the kingdom. I pray this for myself, for my brothers and sisters here at Camden, for our church as a whole, for your holy church throughout the world, that we would exercise the means of grace boldly, and in so doing, not only get much work done, but bring you honor and glory. You are worthy of it. I pray these things in Christ's name, and ask, Lord, that we be faithful to do this on him on the rock, on the firm foundation who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in his name, amen.